It was really mortgaged to a whole set of narratives about supremacy, which in the physical anthropology world, with the displays of skulls and so on, that told the racist lie that there were different kinds of species. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. For decades, one of the most urgent moral debates in the museum universe has revolved around restitution, with art institutions around the world facing demands that masterworks in their collections be returned, either to countries like Greece and Italy, who say that the treasures in question had been looted by tomb raiders, or to descendants of Jews who had been robbed by the Nazis. Today, the restitution question is as hotly debated as ever. What has changed, however, is that now the source countries that are demanding the returns are in Africa, and the looting at issue had been carried out by Britain and other European powers across the bloody years of colonialism, whose horrors remain obscured by the hagiographic official histories of the era. Now, a new book is cutting through the Gordian knot of restitution with an argument of bracing moral clarity, showing the West's great quote-unquote universal museums to be complicit in a history of ongoing atrocities, it's called The Brutish Museums, The Benin Bronzes, Colonial Violence, and Cultural Restitution, and it's by Dan Hicks, a professor of contemporary archaeology at Oxford. As its title suggests, the book focuses on a particular incident of looting, the seizure of thousands of artworks from the Kingdom of Benin in 1897, and it is a history that should be really known around the world. To delve into the ongoing saga of the Ben and Bronzes, I'm very happy to have Dan Hicks on the show today for a two-part episode. First, to recount the tragic story of the looting of the kingdom, and second, to discuss the fate these magnificent objects are facing today. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Dan. Wonderful to be here, Andrew. So before we get into things, let's set the table a little bit. You are a professor of contemporary archaeology at Oxford. What is contemporary archaeology? So, yeah, I've been here in Oxford for 14 years where I have an unusual role in some ways in that I'm half in a museum as a curator and half in an archaeology department. So for me, contemporary archaeology is about that sense that we can question the limits of archaeology in a temporal way. We can understand archaeology has something to say about the 19th century and the 20th century. It's a tradition that comes in some ways out of Americanist historical archaeology. But it also questions whether archaeology has to end at any certain point and whether we can use archaeology to understand the world around us. And that's where it intersects really with my role in the museum. So at the Pitt Rivers Museum, which is the University of Oxford's archaeology and anthropology museum, I am part of a team that oversee hundreds of thousands of objects from around the world. And of course, understanding what they were originally for has in the past been an interest. But actually what they mean in the present for me is the most urgent task. And what actually makes up the collections of the Pitt Rivers Museum? So it's a named museum. It starts with a donation to the University of Oxford in 1884. But it was founded with 30,000 objects or so, which Augustus Henry Lane Fox Pitt Rivers a soldier, a collector, an archaeologist 
had assembled over 30 years or so from the 1850s until the 1880s and had displayed in London at a series of different venues. He gave them to Oxford in 1884. And then since that date, the the objects have grown. We're now 10 times the size of that original gift. Most of those objects sort of appeared either in between 1884 and, say, about sort of 1939. So under the British Empire, objects from all over the empire, all over the world, in fact. At the same time, in 1884, the museum also sort of received earlier collections, which were already here in Oxford. So the 17th century collections from America and the Cook collections, which had been in a college in Oxford, a whole host of earlier collections. So now we have... 300,000 objects from almost every nation in the world, and about a third of those are from Africa. A very important part of the Pitt Rivers collection comes from the Kingdom of Benin, and this, of course, is really the meat of your book. How did you first get drawn to the art from the Kingdom of Benin and the cultural history around this place? So in the galleries, in the permanent displays, there is a case which is called the Court Art of Benin, which is one of the most prominent cases in the museum and is unusual because the Pitt Rivers Museum was established as a typological museum, as it was called. So the objects in most of the cases, and this was the vision of the founder, were mixed up according to culture and time and context. So objects are arranged by type. There's a case for objects that are related to lights and lighting, where there is a juxtaposition of lamps from ancient Egypt with 19th century Mongolia, you know. However, unusually in this case, for the Benin case, all of these objects were actually uh, taken in a single moment of looting in the late 1890s. And the story of that expedition, as it was known at the time, is told in that case. And it turns out that the same story is told in scores of other museums around the world. So while we here in Oxford curate more than 10,000 objects that were looted in 1897, obviously uh, we're not the only museum that does this. So it's a theme, it's a question with which the book seeks to grapple. Why is it that every so-called universal museum, every so-called world culture museum, anthropology museum, feels it has to have a Benin bronze or lots of them? And why is it that this attack, this history of the military victory of the uh, the British over the Ober of Benin, the leader or the king, why is it that that story is told in so many different galleries around the world. So that was one of the questions which really drove me to feel that this book needed to be written. So this month is actually the 124th anniversary of the looting of the Kingdom of Benin. Tell me, what would you have seen if you had arrived in this kingdom and the city of Benin prior to the looting, in the years of the 1890s? It's incredibly important to visualise what we're talking about here, because we're not simply talking about a city. We're talking about a sacred landscape and a royal landscape. So the Obers or the kings in this kingdom are an unbroken line 
who continue to exist today. And that line reaches back centuries. It goes back in an unbroken line earlier than the reign of Elizabeth I. So more than over half a millennium, this royal court had been an urban landscape in which the palaces of each of the Obers after the Ober had died was abandoned and turned into a mausoleum. And each of the palaces then became a site for worship, a site for veneration of the ancestors. And this really unique artistic tradition, which included the famous plaques, which there were about you know, a little over 1,200 of these were known to be removed in this attack. They are maybe the most immediately recognisable examples of NN art. They tell the story of the history of the royal court. They are sort of artworks, but also a form of a document. There's a whole host of other examples of the figure work, which is made out of bronze, the figures of hornblowers or of animals like sort of leopards. Then also this incredibly important ivory sort of making tradition and the large heads of the obers, which are made again in bronze. So on these altars, you'd have the bronze heads of the obers, and in a hole in the top of the head, there would be the carved ivory tusk that told the story again, you know, of the achievement and the history of that ober. There was sort of coral work, there were wooden objects, there's a whole host of other artworks, more than 10,000 objects that were sort of taken, but they were taken importantly from this sacred royal landscape which had developed over hundreds of years. At the heart of this, it's a history of traditional religion in this part of what's now Nigeria. It's also a history of sovereignty. It's the role of the kingdom and how, if you like, the British, as they are not at this point yet a colony, but they're a protectorate in which relationships with the kingdom were central to how they were trading for palm oil and for rubber and so on. But there comes a point after 1884, after the Berlin Congress, where the Europeans are famously uh, dividing up Africa in between themselves and the scramble for Africa, as we euphemistically call it, as if it was a Boy Scout sort of day out, as if it was only the, the sort of Europeans elbowing each other out of the way. And when we call it that name, we forget actually what violence was unleashed upon African populations and sort of kingdoms at that time. So I frame it in the book as World War Zero, as it runs from 1884 up to 1914, this immense, you know, attack across the continent of Africa. But the Benin expedition in 1897 is, if you like, a key moment where the Ober had outlived his sort of usefulness for the British and the corporate colonialism that was increasingly up and down the Niger River had come to the point where it was felt he had to be removed. And in the removal of him, there's an attack then. There's a claim upon sovereignty and upon the removal of this sort of sacred site. So it's a desecration and it's a use of the taking of royal art artworks as a part of an attempt to say, you know, actually, who is sovereign? It's now the British. In your book, you recount the precipitating factors for this raid in great detail, and I'll try to condense it <laughs> into something loosely accurate here. So 
as you said, the Oba of Benin had asserted control over the trade of key resources that were sought by the British, and a diplomatic party was dispatched to ostensibly try to persuade him to re-engage with trade. They arrived during a sacred festival, despite being told not to arrive during a sacred festival, and most of them were killed in mysterious circumstances. Then an overwhelming force was sent in on a punitive mission to wreak vengeance on the city, and what happened next was a scene of horror that was recounted on the British side, at least, in the words of Richard Burton, as a city of blood. What was this kind of macabre narrative that the British had weaved about this city and this conflict at the time? Like the way that the British were presenting it was as something like almost like out of a, a cinematic horror movie. Of course, I mean, you absolutely rightly mentioned the framing of the city by Richard Burton. But importantly, he had done that several uh, decades earlier when he had been consul. So the story about the kingdom of Benin as being all sorts of references to devil worship and to cannibalism and to human sacrifice and slavery... Obviously, traditional uh, religious site, there is some kernel of truth in some parts of the existence of slavery, of limited histories of human sacrifice and uh, traditions there. But they are retold in this way in which they're weighed up against this incredible military force that goes in and attacks across such a, an enormous area, and not just with equality in terms of weaponry. They're going in with sort of Maxim you know, machine guns. So I guess the third thing that happens in 1884, apart from the founding of the Pitt Rivers and apart from the Berlin Congress, is it's the year in which the Maxim is invented, the machine gun. In those accounts that seek to describe and to play upon racist tropes of African sort of kingdoms as wholly other, which are part then of a wider technique of framing the entity which is being attacked as an aggressor somehow, as some earlier wrong. So the idea of the punitive expedition, and that's how this was framed as so many of these expeditions were, you know, this is at the heart of, of, if you like, how the British Empire, especially under conditions of informal empire, how they sought to actually justify incidents of extreme violence. The idea of the reprisal. I mean, it's an idea later in the British Empire one sees in Northern Ireland, one sees in Kenya, for example. But it's across Africa and in sort of West Africa a great deal in the 1880s and 1890s. And what exactly is it that this kingdom is sort of meant to have done? Are they meant to have broken a treaty? Are they meant to be offensive to the British because of the existence of slavery? And then when it comes to the description of the city, as if it's filled with corpses, as some of the soldiers describe... Actually, to what extent are they describing the massacre that they have just wrought with their machine guns? And to what extent are they describing a religious sort of site? It's unclear. But what is clear, and of course they don't count the bodies, there is no report in this way. What there is, is a whole set of highly spun journalistic accounts in sort of popular books 
And there were journalists on the ground in the Daily Mail, from the from the Times, from the Illustrated London News, these relatively, you know, new forms of telegraph journalism, you know, where actually a news of what's happening in Africa is moving around incredibly fast and is being spun. I think that's what the book tries to get into. It tries to unpick some of the truth here. What were these sort of justifications? What exactly happened with this first expedition? How many were really killed? How would we weigh up in a modern way? Actually, whether that supposed killing of a certain number of sort of white people at the beginning was a reasonable response to that, was this incredible attack, which, of course, importantly, had been planned for a long time. This enormous cynicism in turning something that is really about trade and about trying to punish somebody who is standing in the way of British colonial imperatives, and then framing it as the fact that they are actually rescuing these people from their hideous religious practices and, and, and slavery. It reminds me of that that notorious piece of rhetoric from the Vietnam War that, that they had to destroy the city to save the city. And of course, you lay out you know, in great detail how heavily armed the British are versus the African troops and how many British people died in the actual raid itself. Yeah, it's a tiny handful. The book gives the exact figures of who we know died and who didn't. Importantly, what was a double operation? So there's this separate corporate operation going on in northern Nigeria at precisely the same moment. So in northern Nigeria, which is led by the Royal Niger Company, and the military attack, which is led by the Protectorate, so the, and so the British Colonial Service, there are actually two expeditions going on. And we have much clearer figures for the North because in some ways the nature of the fighting is different. That is essentially a medieval sort of army on horseback, which is simply mown down with the machine guns. Yeah, what's really different in the South, in the Benin expedition, is that this is jungle warfare. They're approaching it in a completely different way because of the sheer number of the carriers and the cutters that they employ hand in hand with the machine gun. So their approach is simply to cut into the bush and to rake the jungle as they go with the machine guns. So the number of casualties as they go along, because they're just randomly shooting into the, into the jungle, are simply not counted in the same way. It's a different form of warfare. And they're coming at the city from three different angles. And they're burning sort of villages and towns as they go up and down the other sort of rivers. This is sort of not only the 38 Maxim guns, it is rocket launchers, it is electric lighting, it is barbed wire. I mean, this is incredibly modern sort of military technology. And I think the Vietnam analogy is very interesting because you know, the nature of the Vietnam fighting, the difference in the, you know, in the sheer sort of you know, military scale of what's going on. But in this case, we're in 1897 and the technologies that would find their way pretty soon onto the soils of Europe. And, you know, with all the horror that we saw in the 20th century in Europe, they're being tested on the bodies of Africans in the 1890s. There's no national consciousness at all about these histories. Here in the UK, we think of empire often, but when we do, we think of slavery. We think of almost the spin, 
that happened on the 200th anniversary of abolition, which was 1807. So, you know, when we came to the 200-year anniversary, so much of the British sort of shift of consciousness on these questions was somehow slavery was something the British won, a bit like they won the World Wars or they won the 1966 World Cup. You know, this is good news for the British, which kind of just ignores their sort of role in it in all the horror of the taking of people from West Africa. So we erase these histories of African war, the ultraviolence. On the one side, we've overlooked the military history, but we haven't necessarily realised how important art at this point was for world history. After the African troops are totally annihilated by the British, they go in there and they not only sack the city, they raise it to the ground. They explode a sacred tree. They destroy the religious houses and execute the religious leaders. The palace is destroyed. It's eventually turned into a golf course. They burn the royal manuscripts. It's just incredibly thoroughgoing. But then they also engage in the systematic looting of the city. And I believe some 10,000 bronzes, ivories, and other objects were taken. How did they go about the looting? And what was the objective? I think we need to unpack a little bit that sense of how much was systematic and how much wasn't. The book sort of uses the manuscript uh, diary of Egerton, who was the quartermaster for the expedition, who sets out the work to be done on one yeah, Saturday, which was to blow down what he calls the uh, the juju houses, to knock down the walls and to burn down the Queen Mother's house. So, you know, this is absolutely purposeful. And when the first Hague Convention of 1899 was uh, written, I have no doubt in my mind at all that they had the Benin attack in mind because of that sense that the desecration of a religious site is, of course, entirely unacceptable in war. So that was systematic. But the looting, it turns out, was a chaotic, you know, free-for-all. So I'd always believed what I'd been told about the looting, which was that there was some sort of grim logic to the taking of these artworks because they had to be auctioned off in order to defray the cost of the expedition. But I was really, you know, genuinely astounded to find out that there was no record of any such auctioning off of all of the things that were looted. And the more you look, the more it turns out that that didn't happen. So 300 or so of the 1,200 of the plaques were taken officially, you know, by the British and were exhibited in the British Museum, who retain about 195 or so of them now. But then the vast majority of the 10,000 objects were simply, you know, taken by perhaps 150 to 200 men who were administrators and soldiers and officers and sailors who just, you know, took what they could. And those objects then found their way into family collections. Some were sold really quickly. But what's certainly true is that it was only a matter of weeks until some of these objects were on display, having been, been bought on the open market in Berlin, in London and in Oxford. But so many more were retained in families and only then eked out onto the private market, into the art market over the years. And so, so many even now uh, remain 
in the hands of the descendants of those people involved in this act. So I want to go back to an absolutely critical detail that you mentioned, which is the Hague Conventions of 1899. These Hague Conventions really were the first great international law to ban different kinds of war atrocities like the looting of conquered peoples, of wanton destruction and non-strategic <laughs> executions of people. It was basically to try to modernize war into something that was a little bit more humane. But the looting of the kingdom of Benin took place two years prior. So at that time, was the looting that happened there, was it illegal? So the Hague Convention uh, banned the bombardment of defended uh, settlements or towns. It banned dum-dum bullets. The Benin attack is the earliest known example of the use of the dum-dums, which are the filing down of the bullets so they actually hurt the body more. And the Convention also undertook to spare buildings that were related to art and to religion and also the seizure of, of objects which were owned by the enemy. But of course, for the British, yeah, this was not a colony and therefore was not subject to the British law in the same way, which was part of the reason that they could do, you know, expeditions like this in a way they wouldn't have done in the colony of Lagos at that time. Was it legal under international law? Well, fairly quickly, the realisation of what was now possible with all of the new military technologies and the will of the Germans and the British actually, you know, to do this. And, of course, I mean, looking back, we see how, of course, this is a particular moment for white supremacy wishing to, you know, to attack Africa in this way and to justify these, these acts. What certainly happens really quickly is there's a fast move to establish international conventions in order to try to make sure that this sort of thing actually, you know, never happened again. What was the reception like to the artworks from Benin in London and in England at the time? None of these objects had ever been even seen never mind, you know, ever sort of moved outside of the city. They certainly weren't widely understood. So it was a great surprise that the sheer scale of these artworks, how many of them that they were, how fine these artworks were, that was a shock for anthropology museums and, and you know, for the, the art world. There were all sorts of attempts to claim that these artworks could never be made by West Africans, all sorts of ideas that either these were made by the Portuguese or they were made by some itinerant band of Egyptians who somehow found their way to Nigeria at some point in the, you know, circa sort of 1300 CE or something. All sorts of intellectual gymnastics were engaged in to try and argue that somehow this was not a part of a whole range of urban cities and civilizations that were in this area of West Africa, which had incredibly sophisticated court life, you know, metalworking traditions and artwork. It was a shock. So initially, these images and these objects were displayed, in the case of London, uh, you know, alongside ancient Egypt, they were displayed in the Assyrian saloon of the British Museum as if, and I think this is an important point, as if they were from the Bronze Age. So what the book calls the chrono 
political nature of how the museums start to become complicit in this violence. The reason that I spend so long over these histories of warfare is not simply that the stories haven't been told, the earlier expeditions against other chiefs and kings that I go into that sets it into a pattern is important. But we need to tell those earlier histories of violence and ongoing histories of violence because we need to show how there's a continuity with actually, you know, what the museums are doing. And a part of the violence that happens in the museums starts with the desire to acquire these artworks and to present the kingdom as if it had been rocketed into the past. You know, you're in the Bronze Age now. This is a dead civilization. It's been killed and the British have killed it. And the British can now are able to take its objects of sovereignty as if the material culture of the Oba were equivalent to objects from an Egyptian pharaoh. They're literally displayed in the same space. It's not as simple as just propaganda. It was really mortgaged to a whole set of narratives about supremacy, which in the physical anthropology world, with the displays of skulls and so on, that told the racist lie that there were different kinds of species, yeah, maybe it's easier for a modern eye to recognise that as a source of fake race science, a source of, you know, white supremacist story that, of course, only got worse as we moved in the 1920s and 1930s. You know, those of us in the art world who think of ourselves as, you know, maybe more attuned to questions of inequality or racism, you know, than our scientific colleagues, you know, oddly, we just haven't got our eye into realising that the same narratives of supremacy were being told in these displays, that the displays were doing something which was really dangerous. They were saying that there was a cultural supremacy. So for Pitt Rivers himself, all of his writings were about the idea that you could extend to the world of material culture the same principles of evolution, of survival, of improvement. In some ways, that's a pretty straightforward you know, Victorian improvement narrative. But once it gets into the 1890s and it's being, you know, the museums are being used to display the Benin bronzes, it becomes this way of justifying this violence and of also crucially making the violence endure. So understanding how they were displayed at the time and what's going on and the relationship with the looting itself you know, really puts art museums, anthropology museums, absolutely at the heart of this enterprise. And you kind of very interestingly, describe the objects themselves as being these kind of inquiet ghosts that have something that you call event density. So can you talk about what has been the fate of these objects over the century and a quarter since they were looted and what has happened to this event density over that period of time? You know, my personal approach for the past sort of 10 years or so, has been to be interested in the role of any object of you know, material culture, but maybe especially objects in museums, not simply as sort of frozen moments of time, but as ongoing endurances or durations, and therefore, uh, to some extent, as events. So I 
like to see objects as events. I find that a useful frame. The artifice of the museum, indeed the whole joy of a museum, you know, under normal circumstances, is that conceit of sort of timelessness. At the heart of the work of the museum curator is the work of the conservator. Our job is to ensure that the textiles are not eaten by moths and the metalwork is not, you know, rusting away. And yet sometimes those in my role there's been some sort of mission creep whereby we've imagined our role also to be to stop the world from you know, changing around us. And we come to believe, if we're not careful, the idea that the museum really has halted time rather than just slowed time down. So each of these objects continues to endure. What happens to these objects, they gradually are accumulated in in our Western museums, in the increasingly self-styled, you know, universal museums. And the story of the Benin attack is told and retold. And for me, I guess the gradual realisation has been that that every day that we open our doors to a public that are going to see this case that tells the story of the Benin Bronxes and how they were taken... Uh, no matter how well we tell that, uh, no matter how honest we are in how we tell that, how much of every detail there is in our text panel, those displays, while restitution is being claimed, you know, every day that they remain, there's a reinscription of that violence, and there's a there's a repeating, there's a deepening of that, you know, of those processes. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle, to be concluded next week with a discussion of the fraught status of the Benin Bronzes today. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.